Welcome back to Give Me Some Truth. I'm Keith Ponyos, and today in the booth, I'm joined by uh, Mitch DeWitt, another financial advisor, and we're going to be talking about uh, something, uh, you know, pretty pretty exciting for both of us. We're excited. Uh, you want to introduce our guests today? Absolutely. So not only do we have two of us in the room here from Walkner Condon, but we also have two special guests joining us via Zoom. So I get the the pleasure and honor to introduce them. So we have Eric Lewis on the call, who is the Midwest ETF sales representative for JP Morgan Asset Management. And we also have Jack Manley, who is a global market strategist for JP Morgan Asset Management. So they're joining us via Zoom. And the structure of this, we're going to do kind of a little QA. So yeah, so well, we we should you know introduce uh, and Eric has been kind enough to introduce us to to Jack, who works on what I think is one of the best tools that financial advisors have. Uh, I frequently use the slides and share them with clients. And you know, when we talk through what we're thinking about with the market and why you know certain asset classes look appealing and and so on, we often refer to to the J.P. Morgan Asset Management Guide to Guide to the Markets. And so, Jack, you you work on the the preparation of that. How long have you been doing that? I do. So uh, I've been on the team now for about six and a half years. I joined in uh, June of 2016. Second gig here at JP Morgan. I started out of college doing uh, strategy and business development, something very similar to management consulting before uh, transitioning over to this much more markets focused, client focused uh, part of of the business. So going on seven years, which is pretty and, crazy. And I always tease Mitch with the joke, you know, how do you know if somebody went to the University of Michigan? Don't worry, they'll tell you. Um, yes, but I, I'm I'm very excited because Jack and I both uh, attended the same alma mater. Uh, we're both liberal arts guys from the University of Chicago. And Jack, you were a history major. So one of the things that I'm kind of curious about, um, you know, in the office, we often debate about, you know, the various majors. Uh, you know, engineering like Mitch or comparative literature like I am, you know, I think between the two people would probably say history is a little more practical than, than comparative lit. Um, but what, what about being a history major? You know, what skills does that help allow you to bring to, to putting this guide together? Yeah, Keith. Well, well, the first thing I'll say, and you'll remember this as a, a fellow Chicago grad, uh, that, that for a lot of the majors that you have at that school, it, particularly from a liberal arts perspective, you do have to write a thesis to graduate. So uh, even though it was just a, a bachelor degree, uh, I still had to write a thesis. And so while I majored in history, my focus for that thesis was about early modern British financial history. Uh, and what that means basically is talking about the birth of central banking. So for every recruiter that was asking me that same question that you just asked me right there, <laughs> you know, how do you translate a history background into a job on Wall Street? That was kind of the easy plug and play answer where I could say, well, look, I actually studied a little bit of financial history. And so uh, maybe I know a little bit more about the underpinnings of this whole industry um, that, uh, that, that, that that I strive to work in. Right. But but I'd say in terms of the kind of day to day, it's it's the research process that's been very helpful. It's figuring out how to read, figuring out how to research, figuring out how to learn how to synthesize information, distill it down into something that's a little bit more punchy, a little bit more pithy. So I, I'd say the research process is really what benefited from that history background. I'll tell you, though, what didn't help with is writing, because, uh, you know, I did four years of academic writing. And let me tell you, academic writing is irrelevant in the real world. And uh, the way I think about it is that when you're in school, right, you have a page minimum. In the real <laughs> world, you got a page maximum. And so I had to completely tear that book up and start fresh 
in terms of how I thought about writing, but the reading, the research process very much uh, uh, benefited from that history background. Well, and, and there are some academics on your team, right? I mean, it's it's led by Dr. David Kelly, right? And and he yeah. has a research background. Um, so it, it's not it's not unique to the team either, right? No, not at all. I mean, I, I, I love this point that you made because I work with a guy that um, he was a poli sci major. I work with another guy who studied African-American studies. Right. I mean, things that are not directly linked to finance, banking or economics. Uh, I do think that that liberal arts background, that kind of life of the mind, as they say, uh, back at school uh, is very beneficial for, for any sort of job like this. Well, we'll try to get sponsorship from the University of <laughs> Chicago for this podcast. Um Generally, you know, we, we mentioned Dr. Kelly, and, and can you talk briefly about how you guys work to put it together? What's the editorial process? What what you decide to include? Uh, you know, a lot of slides, a lot of the information are same month over month, but, you know, you guys do make some changes in terms of focus and so on. What, you know, w- what goes into that process? It's, it's a good question. So we, we update the guide in terms of data on a daily basis. So about 9.30 a.m. Eastern, Monday through Friday, every single slide of the guide that can be updated will will be updated. But in terms of actually swapping in and out new material, that happens on a quarterly basis. And a couple of weeks before the quarter end, we get together as a team and then have this conversation, Keith, right about what we think belongs in the guide, what we think may, uh, may have to come out. Now, the guide has not changed in page count, excepting what happened during COVID for a very, very long time. And there is a practical reason behind that. It's because we print out the guide to the markets and we mail the guide to the markets to financial advisors all across the United States. And as you can imagine, when you're printing 200, 300,000 copies of this little book, the weight of that little book matters a whole lot. (laughs) And so the page number that we have, the page count that we have is the maximum page count that you can get before you tip it into a new weight class and add a couple million dollars in freight charges. So it is a very sensitive conversation when we have these conversations before the guide is actually put together, what goes in, what goes out, because there's very little wiggle room. I'll say to to your point, Keith, most of the pages in the guide are going to stay exactly the same. I'd say in any given quarter, uh, we're swapping out two, three, maybe four. A good example of slides that were removed recently or a slide that was removed recently was we used to have a page on the impact of, uh, of politics on investing leading up into the midterm elections, right? Letting politics interfere with how you think about the market, how you think about the economy. Well, the midterms are behind us, thankfully. That page won't be relevant for another couple of years, so it has now been removed from the guide. Similarly, we're getting a lot of questions about uh, inflation, right? And so what we decided to do was add a little bit more material on inflation. We get a lot of questions on housing, added a little bit more material on housing. So sometimes there are things that come up in client conversations that we feel have to be addressed. And on a quarterly basis, we'll swap those in. Sometimes material is not as relevant. And so that gets pulled out. Last thing I'll say is that while a lot of folks out there know about the guide to the markets, we also publish something called the bench. That is also published on a quarterly basis, but it is not updated daily like the guide. It's not even printed. It only lives on the Internet. And if you want to think about the guide as the greatest hits, the bench is kind of like the deep cuts. It's the B-sides. It's the stuff that's good. And if you're a fan of the guide, you're going to love this stuff. But it may not necessarily make the grade for that printed version of the guide to the market. So believe it or not, there's another 60, 70 pages floating uh, floating around out there on the Internet, very similar to guide material. 
Um, related, uh, to the, to the, you've also added stuff about COVID and things like that of, of late. Um, but, um, you know, I, I think, you know, our clients are, are interested in those kind of big, big ticket items. Um, you know, the biggest one right now, uh, the U S markets, we've had a pretty good start to January. Uh, we'd be having a very different maybe conversation in, in December. What are the numbers telling us right now about, about the U S markets, you know, kind of big picture. Sure. So so there are a couple of different things that I would say about this. And I think we could benefit from referencing some slides from the guide to the markets. Nice visuals here um, for for this this conversation. The first thing I'd like to do is talk about page five from the guide, which will be looking at valuations for the S&P 500. Just to make the point very briefly uh, that while multiples have reflated a little bit since the uh, the last couple months of last year, they are still considerably lower than they were at the start of 2022. Remember, if we wind the clock back about a year, we entered last year with the number one biggest concern being stocks trading at their highest price to earnings ratio in 20 years since the dot-com bubble. And at the, at the beginning of uh, last year, they were trading around 22 times earnings, right? Exactly. See, yeah, there you go, Eric. Yep. Perfect. I, I, exactly. For those of you, you know, scoring at home, uh, you know, listening on the radio, want to help out those folks, you know. <laughs> so we went from 22 times forward earnings to about 17 and change. And that massive contraction in multiples is what really drove that contraction in equity markets that we saw last year. So if you want to be kind of a glass half full person about the outlook right now, the one good thing I'd say is that the multiple story isn't really a problem. Valuations, I don't think are going to move a whole lot this year because they've come back down to earth after where they were about a year ago, north of 22 times. But there is uh, other stuff to talk about, of course. And if we flip forward a few pages to page eight uh, from the guide to the markets, talking a little bit about that, about that other lever that you can pull, right, when it comes to price return, that's going to be earnings growth. And that's where uh, I think things are a little bit more, more murky, a little bit muddy. 2021 was a banner year for corporate profits, 70% year-over-year earnings per share growth, but so much of that driven by margin expansion. Companies getting really lean, really profitable post-COVID. And as we moved through last year, and we are still working our way through the fourth quarter earnings season, very, very clearly, the earnings picture is not the same, right? We are not looking for double-digit earnings growth. In fact, we're looking for a contraction in 2022 earnings right now to the tune of around 4%. Most of that being driven by margin compression. Wage costs are higher. Rates are higher. Input costs are higher. The, the economy has reopened. It just costs more money to do business now than it did a year ago. And as we look through this year, what's going to happen with earnings, we need to pay particular attention to the health of the economy, that question around recession. Now, it seems, I think, on balance, maybe a little bit more likely than not that we enter a recession in the first half of this year. I don't think it's obvious. It still may come down to a, a coin toss. But what I do think is important is that from at least where we said, whatever economic slowdown comes our way, recession or not, it should not be a deep, painful recession like 2020, like, like 2008. It should be much milder, much more mellow. And if that is indeed the case, then revenue growth probably won't stall out too badly this year. So when I think about overall how we're set up on the equity market, I see a lot of chop coming our way over the next three to six months. But I do think there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And while I don't think we're going to get 15, 20, 30 percent out of the S&P this year, I think modest low to mid single digit returns by the end of 2023. That's entirely within the cards. So, oh, go ahead, Mitch. Sorry. Oh, well, no, go for it. You, uh, you were, I think you were going to make a tangential point. Well, I was just actually going to build on that. And, you know, what you had mentioned, it seems like what we're hearing in, in the media and so on 
versus, you know, kind of a mild recession, coin flip recession, there is a, a big disconnect from that kind of narrative versus, you know, the way people feel about the markets and, and so on and so forth. So wanted to, you know, get your thoughts on where, is there a disconnect? Where is that disconnect lie? You know, there are some positive numbers in the guide. Um, I think of the number of, you know, applicants to job openings number, for instance, there, you know, and, you know, wage growth is, is obviously an inflationary pressure, but we live in, you know, a unique time where there was no wage growth for a long period of time. So, you know, what, what, where is there a disconnect and where does it come from? So, so there is a disconnect and I, um, I, that's totally normal too. You know, I, I think that a lot of us have conditioned ourselves to feel like the stock market has to be a mirror image of the economy. Uh, and it just isn't, I mean, point blank, it just is not. And uh, while right now is a good example of that, I think an excellent example of that is what happened during COVID when you had this massive market sell-off, you had um, you know, an economy that saw the unemployment rate shoot up into double-digit territory, and yet some of these high-flying technology names were taking off like a rocket ship and making investors in that space a boatload of money while the economy has fallen into the worst recession that we've seen in a century. And the reason you can explain at least that disconnect is that while technology for example, represents a massive component of the U.S. equity market is a very, very small component of overall U.S. employment. So while we think about technology as being kind of the whale out there, it's the big thing from a market's perspective, it's comparatively pretty small in the economy. And so that's one example of why you don't necessarily uh, see these things line up. But you're right, Keith, you know, people aren't feeling particularly well about the state of things. Uh, there is a page in here on consumer confidence that I do think is worth pointing out just to make the case for how bad people feel about current uh, the current environment. We take the consumer confidence number on page 25 from the Guide to the Markets all the way back to the early 1970s, 50 years worth of data. And while this number has come off the floor a little bit from where it was just a handful of months ago, which, by the way, was the worst reading we have ever seen, it's still pretty darn low and is actually significantly lower than the lows that we achieved during COVID. People feel awful about the current state of affairs, despite some of those things that you had mentioned, right? That wage growth is running very strong is a great example of that. Um, that, uh, uh, that, that inflation seems to be modestly coming off a of boil. That's also a very encouraging sign. So I do think there is a disconnect between the stock market and the economy. We always know that when the stock market thinks about the economy, it is forward looking. So it sees through recessions and it typically bottoms before any sort of actual economic bottoming out. But I wouldn't be too concerned about this disconnect. I do think it's very, very normal. And I think it is just evidence that the stock market is starting to see that light at the end of the tunnel that uh, that you and I were, were just talking about a moment ago. And for those that are not seeing the slides, you may be driving into work, listening to the podcast. This the slide shows over time goes back to the early 70s, looks like. And then on the Y axis is consumer confidence. And essentially at the lowest point of consumer confidence or consumer sentiment, usually thereafter is is a very positive return. So what, what that says essentially is when sentiment is the lowest, typically not necessarily the worst time to be in the market and invest, right? So there's kind of an inverse correlation there. Yeah, it's that it's that old Warren Buffett adage of be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. It's a good exactly. visualization of that, Mitch. Yeah, great point. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
another thing that that we wanted to talk about, and we, we talked about a little bit earlier as far as inflation and, and input costs, for example, and how in 2022 that ate into some margins. So inflation in general, in the guide, there is an inflation heat map. And Eric, if you could maybe find that, but could you talk to this a little bit, just the inflation heat map, what it is, and then how we might look at something like this going into 2023? Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. And uh, I'm glad you brought this page up, Mitch, because this is an example of another new slide that was added to the Guide to the Markets in this most recent uh, planning committee conversation because we are having these in-depth conversations around uh, inflation. So page 29 from the guide, the inflation heat map looks at headline and core CPI. That's going to be your your typical measure of inflation, the measure of inflation that's going to be quoted uh, when you hear about it on CNBC or, or you know wherever you get your news from. And then what we do is we break down inflation into all of its various subcomponents. So you've got a few different ways of measuring energy. You have some food on here. You have core goods, things like apparel, vehicles. And then you also have what we call core services, shelter, medical care services, and then transportation. And what's very interesting about this page is that as inflation has cooled off, and it has cooled off, we know that we now know that June really feels like the high watermark for CPI. Back then, it was around nine percent year over year. The most recent reading under six and a half percent. So it's a pretty significant improvement. But what we've seen here is that as that inflation print continues to get better in the six months following uh, that June high watermark, there are still certain elements of inflation that are stubbornly hot. And uh, the visual here is compelling, right, because it is a heat map, so you can see the heat right there on the page. But I'll, I'll tell everybody that's, that's just listening, most of the pain that we are feeling right now from an inflationary perspective is going to be concentrated in shelter costs. That is going to be a combination of rental costs, if you're renting your home or your apartment, and then another thing called owner's equivalent rent. And the idea there is basically if you own your own home, but for whatever reason had to rent it, what would you be paying to rent, rent, rent that place? And we'll get into that in just a second. But the important thing to remember here is that shelter as a bucket on its own accounts for roughly a third of all CPI. So any sort of movements in shelter, even small ones, are going to have an outsized impact on overall prices. And there is a serious problem, I think, with how the Fed calculates shelter inflation. The issue, right, is that if people, uh, let's say six months ago, took out a, uh, a new one-year lease on an apartment, and in the six months since that happened, that same apartment would be going for $300 less per month than it did six months ago. That's going to take another six months to wash out of the system and be accurately reflected. So the problem with the rent number on this page, I'd say, is that it's not really in real time. It operates with the lag. So even though most major cities have seen pretty significant downward pressure on rent over the last six months for new rent, uh, for, for, for new new agreements, that has not been captured in the data just yet. The other issue, right, kind of piggybacking on that, specifically with OER, that owner's equivalent rent, is that not only is it taking that baseline of rent, which is, uh, as, as we just said, uh, operating with a bit of a lag, but it is also kind of a made-up number. It is not an observable price in the same way as half a dozen eggs at the supermarket or a new vehicle or the cost of flying across the country, right? You can figure out what the actual price of those things are very, very easily. You cannot observe owner's equivalent rent. It's kind of made up. There's a bit of hocus pocus going on with that. And considering the fact that that measure alone accounts for around a quarter of all CPI, having that be sort of opaque, I think, is a challenge when it comes to the inflation outlook. 
So if I had to say one thing about where the pain is and how to think about inflation, I'd say if most of the issues right now seem to be focused in housing and that housing measure seems to be a flawed measure, maybe inflation is not as hot as what those numbers are telling us. And maybe as we move through the first half of this year, those numbers are going to meaningfully uh, come lower uh, and get a little bit closer to, to sort of what we got used to experiencing pre-COVID. And Jack, could you do a, a quick little high-level commercial, I'll say, on the difference between year-over-year year and the month-over-month month inflation prints that we're seeing? Sure. So so year-over-year year is a number that you are typically quoted in the news, and that reflects what the cost is of this basket of goods you know, last month, let's say uh, December, versus what that same basket of goods would have cost in December of 2021. So it's a year-over-year year measure. The other measure, the month over month measure is comparing, say, December to November. That's obviously going to be a much, much smaller number. And the way that comparisons work is that it is entirely possible for a month over month number to be negative, which is what we actually saw this go around for headline inflation, but a year over year number to be positive because it still represents an increase over where prices were in December of 2021. We like to say that those base effects, those comparisons of year-over-year -year figures are going to get more challenging for inflation as we move through this year. If, if you want an easy way to think about it, I'd say it's a lot harder to grow prices 10% off of a base that's already significantly elevated as opposed to growing prices 10% off a base that is significantly depressed, right? It's, it's a lot harder to push those costs through. So those base effects are going to start to help us with that year-over-year -year inflation print while that month-over-month -month inflation print gradually improves as well. Well, and I think as well, if you look at the, the heat map and you go back to 2020, right, and you see uh, uh, you know, a lot more of those negative numbers, it's not on this this map, but you saw you know, how low and, in, in fact, deflationary there were certain items. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other nice thing about this guide is it shows you where during the course of the year you saw the price increases, right? Um, so... Early in the year is food and energy, right? Uh, the things that I think affect most Americans on a day-to-day -day basis most directly. And now as the year goes on, you're seeing, like you said, that, that change into shelter costs. Um, so, you, you know, it's a, it's a good visual to get a sense of how inflation is, has changed, that it's not just a, a standard thing. It doesn't help when you go to the you know, grocery store right now and your eggs are more expensive because of the bird flu. But, you know, it, it you get that that visualization, your your right. costs have changed. It's no longer the, you know, my cat food is so much more expensive kind of thing. Um, Jack, what I want to kind of pivot to here is something near and dear to my my heart is uh, international markets. And, and you know, we've been banging the drum uh, for the last two years in another, I think, maybe I don't know if it was Warren Buffett, but one of the old adages is the market can stay wrong longer than you can stay solvent. Um, you know, but in 2021, I wrote a piece about, hey, you know, international markets are undervalued and wrote another piece for our uh, guide, uh, basically saying I could have I can just repeat my my piece from last year. Um, so what what can you tell us about international markets? Am I crazy? Are they undervalued? What you know, what do you see? So if we look at the international valuations page from the guide, I mean, we can certainly make the point that international markets are quite undervalued, at least when you compare them to history and certainly when you compare them to what's going on in the U.S. Now, we know. Um, yeah, if we could go to the there we go. Perfect. Eric, thank you. Uh, now, now we know that uh, that they're actually maybe not. Maybe people don't necessarily know this, but um, international markets actually had a decent year last year, all things considered still negative, but 
better than what you were getting out of the U.S. And that was in both local currency terms and in U.S. dollar terms. So when we think about the valuation argument, it used to be just out of this world compelling, more than two standard deviations cheap relative to its uh, uh, discount relative to the U.S., We've seen that number reflate just a little bit. Now we're at a modest one and a half standard deviation cheap relative to the U.S., which is to say things are still very, very much on sale from an international market perspective. Now, the issue I'd say, Keith, is that because international markets have been on sale for so long, you kind of have to wonder, well, are they cheap for a reason, right? Is this a value trap? And uh, while over the long run, maybe valuations can tell you something about U.S. markets, do they tell you the same thing about international markets? And last year was a year that we were getting really excited about international because not only are international markets inexpensive, they're also very cyclical in nature. They have a whole lot of exposure to things like a whole lot less exposure, excuse me, to things like technology, which has driven market returns for the last 10 to 15 years, way more exposure to things like financials, industrials, materials and, and energy. And as we were entering last year, we saw a global uh, cyclical upswing, the whole world finally starting to recover from COVID in the way that the U.S. had done six to nine months before. And that was really exciting because now you have not only stocks are cheap, but there's a catalyst for outperformance, something we've been missing for the last 10 to 15 years. And I'd say that that exuberance lasted maybe three or four weeks. And then Russia invades Ukraine uh, and sort of turns the outlook on its head. All of a sudden, people become very pessimistic about developed market equities, particularly in Europe, mostly because uh, not just, of course, the sort of existential dread uh, that, that, that exists because, because of the war, but also what it was going to do to, to energy prices. And as we saw in that previous inflation heat map, right, energy prices moved quite a bit in the first half of this year. Now, what's surprising, I'd say, is that Europe did not fall into the deep, dark recession that a lot of us were afraid of. Uh, and in fact, if you look at the uh, PMI heat map, um, Eric, which I think is, is floating around here somewhere, but I don't remember specifically what the page number is. If we look at the PMI numbers, which are just purchasing managers indices, uh, a way of sort of comparing apples to apples, economic momentum in a bunch of other uh, a bunch of different countries, you'd be able to see. Thank you. Uh, that actually the U.S. is faring a whole lot worse than a lot of these other developed markets. On the right-hand side of page 51, the easy way to read this is that green is good and anything above 50 indicates expansion. Well, there's not a whole lot of green on this page, particularly for developed markets, and there are no developed markets right now that seem to be in expansion mode. The U.S., though, contracting more than Europe. So I do think we can perhaps get a little bit excited about international markets this year with this kind of cyclical upswing starting to take shape, maybe in a way that we were hoping for a year ago. Europe managed to avoid this deep recession thanks to a pretty mild winter. Valuations are still very compelling and the dollar should likely depreciate a little bit this year. All this, I think, makes for an interesting case for international uh, at the very least. Speaking of the dollar depreciating, that's the, we have a list of questions that we talked about beforehand. And just currency effects in general was something that that came up because last year the dollar was so strong. So could you, could you take that topic and, and continue to go down that currency path as far as how that affects international markets? Of, of course, yes. And there is, uh, there is as always, there's a page uh, in the guide, thank you, about uh, currency and international equity returns. Um, the right-hand side of this page is the one that really matters for us as U.S.-based investors, because when you're a U.S.-based investor and you are investing with U.S. dollars, you have two things you got to worry about for overseas markets. 
You have to worry about how that local market is actually doing in local currency terms. And you have to worry about what's going on with the dollar. And if the dollar is appreciating, that other currency is depreciating. And when it comes time to kind of cash out your returns, you're getting less on that investment just purely because of the movement of the currency. So we break down returns on the right side of this page into both the local currency return and what the dollar did. And you can see that in 2022, the appreciation of the dollar that you mentioned, Mitch, was a pretty significant drag on local currency performance, which was already not so great. This year, that story has started to reverse a little bit. Not only is local currency performance positive, the dollar has weakened a little bit as well. That is interesting. When we think about the longer term view on the dollar, uh, there is a lot to discuss. There's a lot to discuss here and there are a lot of moving parts. It's hard to make a very clear claim for why the dollar should say give back all its gains that we saw last year. I don't necessarily see that happening. When we think about what drives the dollar over the short run, it's going to be two things. It's going to be uh, interest rate differentials. So the difference between what the Fed has done with interest rates and what other central banks around the world have done with interest rates. And it's going to have to do with, with geopolitics. And when we think about the rate story, you know, the Fed may be pretty close to stopping its interest rate hike cycle, but there are other major central banks, ECB, BOE, um, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, BOJ, you know, they're, they're either not really doing anything like the BOJ or they're getting pretty close to ending too. So I don't really see this uh, interest rate differential gap narrowing at any, at any point or, or closing, I should say. Maybe it narrows, but it will not necessarily close at, at any point soon. And then from a geopolitical perspective, the world is just a very uncertain place. Uh, and with the war continuing in Ukraine and you know a lot of uh, uh, cloudiness kind of surrounding that story, it is hard to say that geopolitics are going to get meaningfully less confusing or scary this year relative to where they were last year. So I can see this world where the dollar depreciates a little bit relative to where we were last year, but calling for the pendulum to swing in the other, the other direction, that I think is going to be a bit more of a, of a challenge. And we, we may be running a little bit towards the, the end here. So we want to ask uh, more of a fun question, I guess you could say. And maybe that's this fine. is a real this is a real University of Chicago definition of fun right here. What's, <laughs> is it? Is this what's the most interesting data point that you, that you found? Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So so I I I I like actually keep the uh, the data point that you mentioned earlier, the one that looks at the ratio of job openings to the, to to job applicants. And I love that number because what it shows you is that for the first time in 50 years, there is an enormous surplus of labor demand out there. And when the Fed talks about engineering a soft landing, we try to figure out, you know, what exactly does that soft landing mean? Well, this number, I think, helps to get us into what that soft landing could perhaps look like. The chart on the left hand side of page 26 looks at this ratio openings to applicants, openings to seekers, takes it all the way back 50 years. And what is wild is that you can count on one hand the number of times that that number has been above one. And where we stand right now, it is obviously the outlier, 1.83 jobs for every applicant. That's why you see help wanted signs all over the place. That's why you're seeing wage growth running at multi-decade highs. I take this number as evidence that the Fed can indeed destroy demand for labor and thereby push wage growth lower without leading to a massive surge in the unemployment rate. 
There is a lot of excess labor that can be sopped up by higher interest rates without the unemployment rate doubling right to 7% or moving up to something close to 8%. So in terms of interesting, that is certainly uh, what, what, I'd, uh, what I'd say. I know there was also, because we did talk about these questions before, and I did put some thought into this, there was a question about surprising. And I think that that's a little bit different from interesting. And for me, the most surprising data point in the guide to the markets actually does relate to international markets, Keith. And it has to do with how when you invest in international markets, the best way to approach international investing is through themes, right? Think about what these regions do particularly well. And uh, there is a slide in the international section. Um, it's going to look at, uh, let's see, it may be international markets. I can never quite remember. We can kind of fl flip around in there, Eric, and we'll get there eventually. But it looks at the map. There it is right there, page 50. If you look at the left-hand side of page 50, it looks at the returns of thematic indices. I bet you a lot of people would be surprised to hear that there is a part of the European equity market that kept pace with U.S. growth equities over the last eight years. I think that's really, really surprising. And that corner of the market that did very well, luxury goods. It's what the Europeans do exceptionally well. We expect them to continue to do that well as China continues to reopen and that global upswing uh, continues to gain momentum. So most interesting data point in the guide, I would certainly say openings to applicants. Most surprising data point in the guide, just how well certain parts of European equity markets have done over the last eight years. No, I, th I think that's uh, that's great. Actually, I hadn't uh, really studied this international market uh, uh, sleeve or or thing there. Uh, and, you know, the, the goal is, of course, that you invest enough in a luxury goods stock that you can one day purchase one of the, the luxury goods themselves. It, it reminds me of our conversation at dinner on Friday, actually. Yeah, yeah. Keith and I had dinner on Friday and uh, among a few others of us. And Keith, Keith knows his luxury brands. Uh, that's uh, probably unfortunately true. I, <laughs> I, I long ago, actually, and I was going to say the most surprising thing in the guide to me was realizing that the 1970s are now 50 years ago. 50 years uh, ago. Yeah, that 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 boy that made me feel old. Um, but uh, yeah, I I I know my I lived in when I lived in New York. My girlfriend at the time was uh, in the luxury goods business, so I learned quite a bit about all of that. And I'll tell you, there is one one brand that uh, above all the others that I, I like, and that's Hermes. I think they they do the the best job of continuing to produce uh, a luxury goods, still family held company, publicly traded. Uh, that's my endorsement. If you want to spend way too much money on a, on a tie or when, when the dollar was at one-to-one -one there for that brief period, you know, get yourself nice. to France and and buy yourself a, a couple of ties. Um, and I, that's where my hardly, I still from, hardly so know I, what I you're talking about. Totally endorse. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, that's, uh, I have a couple of ties there. Uh, when I was in graduate school, I, I scoured in Paris uh, secondhand markets. That's that's how I got nice, there. So, nice. Uh, Want to thank you both uh, for your time, Erica. I have to say you're an excellent, uh, you know, uh, slide caddy as well as on the course caddy. Um, you know, I know that the caddy language doesn't mean much to to Jack. He's not a golfer, but uh, you know, you uh, hopefully you can appreciate that, Eric. And uh, we we really uh, thank you both for for joining us today, Mitch. Anything else you you want to add? No, I was just going to say. Well, yes, I guess I should say yes. There was something I wanted to add, and and was also thank you for for your guys' partnership and and for those clients that are listening, J.P. Morgan Asset Management. You, you might see some of of their ETFs. So, like I said, Eric's the ETF Midwest representative here, um, who supports us, and some of their stuff is in your portfolio potentially. So, um, whether it's on the bond side, there's some equity products, but. 
that that's also the connection, right? How does this relate to what's actually in a portfolio? And they have ETF products that we use, right? Full disclosure for the podcast, we use some of of JP Morgan's products. So um, you might find that right in your portfolio. Well, and I'll say that, you know, a lot of that uh, is correlated to information. The products we use is correlated to the information that we glean from, you know, from working with Eric and and Jack and looking at the guide, right? For sure. For sure. If we can make a data, data, exactly. A data driven decision for why we might want to own something, right. And what allocation. So um, that helps us in our job, make decisions for our clients. So we appreciate both of you and thanks for, for hopping on the call and we'll shut her down here, but um, yeah, until next time, thank you for joining us on Give Me Some Truth. Walkner Cotton Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Registration with the SEC does not imply a certain level of skill or training. The opinions expressed by the participants of this podcast are their own and do not reflect the opinions of Walkner Cotton Financial Advisors. All statements and opinions expressed are based upon information considered reliable, although it should not be relied upon as such. Any statements or opinions are subject to change without notice. Information presented is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and unless otherwise stated are not guaranteed. Information expressed does not take into account your specific situation or objectives and is not intended as recommendations appropriate for any individual. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from a qualified tax, legal, or investment advisor to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation. Past performance is not indicative of future performance. Thanks for listening, and for further information, please visit walknercondon.com.